Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 198 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to host Michael Risse, former Chief Strategy Officer at Seek. Michael's focus is big data technologies and analytics. For over 25 years, he has been working as a consultant, advisor, speaker, and of course, a founding partner at Seek Corporation, transforming industrial process data into actionable intelligence. Prior to his recent work with startups and big data, he achieved successful results in a series of product and sales leadership roles at Microsoft, contributing over $13 billion in revenue, as well as incubation efforts for Microsoft Visual Basic, Office, BizTalk Server, and the overall server and tools business unit. Michael, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast today. Thank you, Ken. It's great to be here. And great to have you. And I must say, already warming to my heart because I was an early user of Microsoft Visual Basic. So <laughs> you talk about early on in the day, way back when you know, trying to do Windows UI was so mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, it was a great tool. So as you know, we call this the Digital Thread Podcast, and we talk very much about one's individual, if you will, digital industry journey that has led them to where, where they're at now. So what would you consider to be your digital thread? My digital thread is is software, right? I'm old enough. I remember what typewriters and whiteout were like. I remember the first time I saw a spreadsheet, the first time I saw a browser, the first time I saw Visual Basic, which you just mentioned. And my passion and focus has been on software, enabling, empowering, inspiring, innovative software that helps people make better results and improves business results. Jane Arnold, in her recent podcast with you, talked about the importance of empowering the front line, the operators, the engineers, bottoms-up transformation, right? Software has been my focus before Microsoft, at Microsoft, obviously, in a number of... And then with Seek, and, and at Seek, for example, the NPS and, and, and CSAT numbers for Seek are outstanding. Seek customers love using Seek. And that level of enablement and empowerment that we provide, that the software provides these users, it's just phenomenal. It gets them promoted, makes them successful. Software has been... My enthusiasm continues to be my enthusiasm, as well as the business models around software. Software, we are the heirs of a publishing history that goes back 600 years. Books, magazines, records, other publications, newspapers, and finally software. And so trying to be a student of the business models and and licensing models for how intellectual property gets monetized right through a variety of means because the marginal cost of the next unit is near zero, right? That's the model of publishing. So the publishing model and the business model around software and then the power and the ability of software to transform people's efforts has been the the center of gravity for my efforts over the last 25 years. Man, yeah, and you have certainly been a veteran. So as I calculate out, you started your tenure at Seek with about 20 years of experience at Microsoft, you know, leading key developer and enterprise offerings, as we talked about. How did this time prepare you to play a leading role in industrial analytics at Seek? (laughs) Ken, that would be a bimodal answer. Uh, Because one (laughs) side totally prepared me for Seek. Because of all the version one products that I worked on. And for some reason, that's just 
what attracted me, what was interesting. The first version of Visual Basic, codenamed Thunder, by the way, VB1, the first version of Visual Studio, the first version of an integrated application suite, Office, the first version of BizTalk, the first Microsoft Enterprise offerings in the server domain. So that heavy lifting and just traction and determination of bringing a version one product to market, all the decisions, all the clarity that's required, all the communications, that was absolutely important and transferable to the Seek experience. Of course, we were doing the incubation effort. The other thing that was absolutely applicable was just all the learning from the different audiences and business models and licensing types and routes to market that Microsoft provided. Just a portfolio of different experiences that you could have in one company, you know, audience by audience or product by product, influencer by influencer and so forth. So that again, very helpful to be able to just separate ourselves and look at arm's length, who is the audience, who is the influencers, what are the routes to market, uh, what are the right messages, what's the market framework, all of those things Microsoft provided an outstanding training ground for. The gap was on the industrial part. And this is with all apologies to any Microsoft employees listening, this was a long time ago, but mm, no. Microsoft's focus was IT products, IT audiences, you know, a network was a network, a database was a database, an email server was an email server for whatever audience. And literally, when we sometimes got questions about the manufacturing space, you'd sort of look at the customer and smile and say, well, let me find a partner who can help you with that. And then you'd leave in case you had to have another question. There's just no manufacturing fluency in the organization during those years, the 1990s and such. Massive change, of course, now. Microsoft and Amazon both investing massively. They've got multiple vertical uh, manufacturing organizations, oil and gas, energy, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, and so forth. So very different today. But back at that point, no. Uh, So the learning and the abilities and the fluency I I think I now have on this manufacturing industrial space, that's all been on the job of Seek. That's all been recently. But the version one incubation efforts, the IT approach to software, those were highly applicable to the to the Seek experience. I'll call it a little side note, but I actually turned down a job offer from Microsoft in the early 90s. It was to be what they considered to be the technology evangelist for WinSim, which was Windows Science, Engineering, and Manufacturing. <laughs> and my primary reason for turning it down is I saw nothing of manufacturing at Microsoft at that very early stage that led me to believe that they were going to do much there beyond, you know, HMIs, right? What Wonder Woman was doing at the time. And so I can relate very much to your topics there. <laughs> from a stock price perspective, it may not have been the right decision. But from a stock Oh, man, Michael, I, I've done those calculations more times than you can count. And, but yeah, I believe that happenstance in life, we always tend to believe it would have been better, right, than it, it does. And I convinced myself that I would have gotten, you know, stepped off the bus the first day on the campus, got hit by a, a car or something, right? So, you know, that's equally plausible. So that helps offset my anxiety about stock options. <laughs> yeah. You joined Seek in August of 2013 as a founding partner. So tell us a bit about the origin story for the company. Sure. So- In 2013, the summer, there were 10 people around a picnic table. How did they get there? Well, about half of those people were development, start of a world-class software development organization who'd worked with the CEO in in his previous company. The CEO was there, had an entrepreneurial background, saw an opportunity, industrial analytics, uh, was excited about working on this space. He was joined by the chief technical officer, Brian, who had a background both at Honeywell as well as a startup 
And at that startup, this is a common story, they were trying to do remote analytics, diagnostics, monitoring of a particular asset class. And he talked with Steve, the CEO, about how hard it was and why it was so hard and why couldn't it be easier given all of the innovation in computer science, data management, big data, and so forth. Uh, they were then joined by Brian, excuse me, by John Peterson, longtime OSI soft executive who really had a sense of the market and the opportunity for working with the data storage and systems and platforms out there. And then my perspective was, I said a moment ago, just let's bring an IT approach to this OT space. Let's span verticals. Let's span different vendors. Let's span geographies. Let's get scale through partners. Let's work with the cloud vendors as a route to market. So that was the group in 2013 and, and the backgrounds. It took two years, the fall of 2015, to get a first version out, which did not have product market fit. 2016 was chasing features, feature sufficiency and adding things. And I tell you, we, we turned the corner in 2017 and the world just changed. It was, this is important. This is something. This gets reactions. And basically, it's been a rocket sled from 2017 to present. Well, and I'd say you played your part, certainly, in helping to steer that sled. So you led key roles, including chief marketing officer and chief strategy officer, going from what I would consider demand creation to demand anticipation. This is kind of unique. Um, now, you mentioned your background in IT and Microsoft particularly, so it's probably almost apropos to what you would have done before, but it's still a unique cross-functional skill to make a jump from one to the other. What enabled you to successfully execute both roles? I think the variety of experiences mentioned earlier, you know, I had familiarity with market analysis, competitive analysis, I had familiarity with demand generation and ran mid-market for the U.S. Uh, US subsidiary. So just a variety of experiences. Then, you know, as a startup, we needed all of them done. So it was one person, me, until it was two person because I could hire somebody and outsource some piece of the work and then accomplish something else and hire somebody to be that part of the work. And so then one person became two, became three, became four, and et cetera. But you know, as an example, my first meeting with Microsoft was in June, because I remember this, June of 2016. We announced Shell as the first SaaS customer on Azure in September of 2018. That was two years, as I call it, kissing frogs, right? Just trying to make something mm -hmm. happen, trying to make one of them turn into a princess. So that was over two years. We hired actually somebody to lead our cloud integration efforts then in, in March of 2019. So almost three years of elbow grease and frog kissing before we'd proven the need for the resource. And that is very much a Microsoft mentality approach to headcount. You don't hire in anticipation of what you think you might need. You hire when you've proven the need and you've got the right person, and then you scale the organization. So very conservative approach to hiring and resourcing based on what's proven that you're overwhelmed as opposed to, you know, I think this might be interesting. Let's hire somebody to look at it. That was not our model, not my model, not my history. So what are you most proud of at Seek? Well, to start from nothing, literally nothing, 10 people from different backgrounds around a picnic table to identify a need, to deliver software, to learn from that software, and then to succeed with that from a business perspective, right? If you look at Depends on the cohort, but if you look at the number of companies that get through A, B, and C rounds, which is where she did, raising total about $115 million, again, depending on the cohort, you know, only six to seven percent of companies make it there. And we got there from scratching a whiteboard to a going business, going concern with hundreds of customers, hundreds of employees. And that's what we did. And the how, though, is I think equally important, which is 
taking care of customers. If you take care of customers, the business is going to take care of itself, right? You don't win by watching the scoreboard. You win by playing the game, by all of the little details and execution and effort. And by taking care of customers, by getting a product out, getting painful feedback, taking the feedback, improving, iterating very quickly, see ships, new versions about once a quarter. That led to business success, which led us to where we are today, where the company is today. So what we did, we achieved something special, something that very few startups do. How we did it, again, I mentioned the NPS and CSAT scores by listening, taking care of customers, tight loop on feedback and helping them be successful, enabling them to be successful. You know, this Seek represents really industrial analytics, as you said earlier. What do you consider to be state-of-the-art in industrial analytics and who do you see as some of the best practitioners of it? So for industrial analytics, one thing I saw repeatedly from a customer perspective, inventory perspective, market perspective, is simply to recognize at least four important audiences and offering sets in the market. Whenever I'd see a customer roadmap that would have one, it would be, let's talk about this because really there are four end audiences and product sets that need to be considered or included in your industrial analytics journey or roadmap. One is certainly machine learning, right? Whether it's the big enterprise ML ops tools like a SageMaker Azure ML or open source as Anaconda, or it's one of the startups, you know, Raven or, or Faro Labs or Quartic AI, there is going to be a machine learning component. There absolutely is no argument. There will be a machine learning component to improve the types and accuracy of analytics in this data set. So there has to be that checkbox. How do you enable that group? The second, how do you enable self-service for process engineers? Excel is 30 years old and was never meant for this type of work. There's got to be better offerings, obviously, Seek, Trendminer, and that space, self-service advanced analytics for process engineers and plants. Third category tends to be more corporate-based, which is the business analysts that want to use Power BI, Spotfire, and Tableau. They need their data very right, right? It's got to be structured. It's got to be assembled. It's got to be contextualized. got to be in rows and columns. It's got to fit those tools. So it needs to be sort of assembled and made ready for those tools, but there are business analysts that need them. And then the fourth category, maybe that's the kitchen sink bucket that says other, right? That's where your statistics packages, OEE metrics, or other sort of custom IT apps, dashboarding apps come into play. And so the state of the art in industrial analytics is two things. One, it's recognizing those four categories and those four audiences and making sure they're all on your roadmap for supporting those different roles and requirements. And then there's the second part, which is, okay, now we got to get the data ready. And I think one of the biggest, most interesting conversations, $10 billion conversations from a market perspective is, how do you get that data ready? And, and this is where you hear about industrial data models or industrial data layers, or you look at the work of a Cognite or maybe an element, an Inmation, which was acquired by Emerson. How do you get the surface level and aggregation, contextualization, and access to enable those four ends and user categories and audiences. So the state of the art is recognizing the four, supporting them all, including ad hoc interaction. And number two, surfacing and rationalizing, organizing the data to make it accessible for those four, four audiences and groups. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Look, you know, it's interesting as our conversation has kind of stepped through, you almost seem to be a bit of an archetype in that your IT meets OT. 
personally and the influence you brought from Microsoft and your impact now that you've had on OT. And it's interesting because one can't go too far in operational technology or OT these days without considering the impact of the so-called hyperscalers, of course, Azure, right? Microsoft, AWS. You and I both know Andrew Oven from B of A, and he just completed their industry forecast at the end of the year. And he listed as one of the five key trends for OT really being the impact of the hyperscalers effectively. So you've been in both worlds. You've actually brought one world to the other. What impact do you see coming in terms of this? Well, <laughs> first of aside, I have to say, I like the fact that Andrew doesn't use the word hyperscalers and that you referenced it. I hear it. I, I don't like the term. And there are a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's the market is actually very clear, right? And if you and I were analysts and analysts profit on confusion, right? So if we were analysts, we would use the word hyperscale as much as we could. So people would have to ask us what we meant and that would be good for our business. But as vendors, as investors, the world is clear. It's AWS and Azure. It's Microsoft and Amazon. There is no third place. And beyond that, I don't even know what exists, but it is Azure and AWS world. Andrew calls those two out specifically in his report. And I think the more that we can just recognize, look, in open software markets, there is consolidation, right? Because of the network effect, because of economies of scale, because of price advantage that those that the leading firms have, there's a first place, there might be a second place, but there's no third. And the most interesting business competition on the planet today is Azure versus AWS and who wins the marketplace battle between the two of them. It's not Burger King and McDonald's, it's not Coke versus Pepsi, it's, it's AWS and Azure. So the importance of just recognizing and starting any conversation, look, what is AWS doing? What is Azure doing? If you're a customer, which way are you leading? If you're a vendor, which one are you going to market with? But they really are dominant in every customer conversation. It was AWS, Azure, or both. And I just see their growth. And I think Andrew points to this with the growth rates he's talking about continuing as they continue to succeed and, and aggregating more of the, of the share. So that's the first. The second one is part of the reason they're going to win is because of how they sell, right? They incent customers, both AWS and Azure. I, I call this the dark arts of the cloud. Both AWS and Azure incent customers to buy more from them as a single source through their Mac and EDP agreements. And those agreements enable IT and procurement and others to get better discounts the more they buy. And that means they're going to be more and more in every IT or excuse me, every software decision and discussion. So IT will be coming more through their purchasing authority with these arrangements, with these cloud vendors into the consideration set of OT purchasing. And so the, the pendulum sort of swings back and forth, but Right now, I believe it's swinging with uh, to IT in terms of the authority, the ability to make those purchase decisions, and that will have an impact downstream on what people can buy and then how what they buy fits into the rest of their systems. Thanks for the clarification on hyperscale. You're absolutely right. <laughs> he calls this the cloud vendors <laughs> yeah. in that. So I'll remember that going into the future because I don't get paid for mentions of hyperscale. <laughs> But, you know, what you just said is pretty interesting. So one of the other trends he's listed of these top five trends is what he calls the sassification, if you will, mm -hmm. of OT vendors. He says uh, that's the industrial software turning sassy is yeah. his term in there. But I think it's interesting because you mentioned the growth number. So he's saying, you know, industrial software likely exceed 250 billion per annum by 2027, representative kegger of 15 percent plus 
I guess my question there is given everything you've just said and you mentioned, you know, which way the pendulum swings, you know, if you're a betting man, who do you see as the winners and losers in this expansion? Well, Andrew mentioned that in his report. What did he say? First of all, what in particular is going to be interesting and compelling? And that was data analytics and AI, right? The cloud is where the manufacturing data is going to go. I would love to do a whole podcast with you on the 10 reasons why that's true, but it's going to go to the cloud for analytics, for data storage, machine learning, AI, and otherwise. So who are the winners and losers? Well, as it says, the competition is going to increase on incumbent automation providers, right? The barriers to entry that have existed in the past for for the automation vendors, right? Proprietary systems and sort of the hardware-centric and attached software attached to hardware sales, right? The cloud is going to bulldoze that. When that data gets to the cloud, it gets open. It gets open to other vendors. It gets open to other opportunities. And so I think there will be pressure on the automation vendors to figure out their value propositions relative to what the AWS and Azure want. What AWS and Azure want, they want the data. Data has gravity. Data attracts other high-value services. So do you really want to be in the data storage business and competing with the Azures and, and AWSs of the world? Or you know, double down on the high value applications and insights you can enable specific to your to verticals on top of those services. And that's a rethink for the automation vendors. It's maybe overdue, but it's certainly coming as, as more of this data gets to the cloud and it becomes more obvious there's a new model for industrial analytics and insights. Well, one, we definitely will have to do this podcast you mentioned, because this is a topic <laughs> that we could spend a lot of time on. But if you look at Schneider Electric and Aviva, Emerson and Aspen Tech, or Rockwell and Plex slash PTC, mm-hmm. certainly there are software moves afoot for all of them, and especially with Emerson's recent pure play moves in, mm-hmm. in the space. It will be a very interesting next five years, as Andrew uh, calls out in his report. So for the, the astute listeners, they've kind of heard Seek as present and past tense. So just for the record, I know that you've recently left Seek. So what's next for you? It'll be software. I can promise that. That's been the digital thread to date. That'll be the digital thread going forward. And probably based on past experience, it's going to be around incubation version ones and getting something started up and going. Uh, And if it's not clear, I think there's incredible progress to be made and change that's coming with respect to that data cloud analytics intersection, right? I, I think about this almost as the Purdue model needs to split. Right. So the Purdue, so level one and level two, great. That stays on prem. Then the data splits. What needs to be real time and stay local versus what needs to go to the cloud is the natural storage space. When it gets to the cloud, it needs to split again. What do you need short term for statistics, analytics, reports? You know, maybe that stays weeks, months. And what, and as much as possible, can you store because you'll want it at some point, but you want to store it cheaply. So you want that off into cold storage. So what does the new model look like? What does the new Purdue model look like where there are a couple of forks between what stays on-prem and what goes to the cloud and what's in the cloud, what's needed versus what's not? How does that become an easy to manage and operate experience for customers? I think that's just a, a super interesting question. I think so, and certainly goes hand in hand with the top reasons for the cloud in IoT. So uh, we'll look forward to putting that on the agenda in terms of our podcast, and maybe we can even uh, convince you to do a, a white paper there along the way. So final question I always like to ask is, where do you find your personal inspiration? Any good books you're reading lately, articles, podcasts, et cetera? So I've split that. One, 
I am really impressed and have been for years with the writing and the insights that McKinsey provides, right? Never mind. My journey in big data was started by the, what was it, May 2011, McKinsey report on big data and analytics. But they continue to be a source of inspiration and opportunity for them in analytics and advantage perspective in vertical markets. And just really appreciate the folks there, the writing they do online and looking for information and updates. That's a steady source of quotes and insights. Personally, on the personal side, the thing about scaling businesses or the, the thing about scaling products is basically you're taking an idea in your head and you are getting into other people's head and then into other people's heads, sometimes directly one-to-one, more commonly indirectly through the web or through writings or through releases, published, I don't know how many dozen articles as a SIC executive over the last couple of years. So I think a lot about communications, right? I talk about thinking through words at the syllable level, really precision, because once the words leave you, they have to be understood by your audience and then understood by that audience's audience in order to scale businesses and impact. Again, we're talking about a global footprint that Seek has right now. I read a lot about writing. I'm reading the read, finished a fantastic book about the history behind Sun Also Rises or Hemingway's book. I'm reading a book right now that's analysis of Russian short story literature. And it's just pounding on the syllables, the words, the, the sentence structure. How do you communicate effectively? And if you're going to grow something and incubate something, it's about getting understanding in lots of other people's heads quickly. So whether it's TED Talks and how to present or whether it's writing, the importance of communication. Communication is the responsibility of the sender, not the receiver. It's the communication responsibility of the sender. My responsibility, how do I do that more effectively to get the kind of reach and impact that I'm looking for? So McKinsey on the analytics and manufacturing side and books on writing on the personal. I love it. That's uh, quite an interesting topic overall that you discuss in, and also explains the concern over the hyperscaler comment earlier. <laughs> Pick your words with care. All right, baby. Especially your TLAs along the way too. So, <laughs> so Michael, look, thank you for the sharing this time and insights for us today. It's been great. Very much appreciated. Thank you for the opportunity, Ken. Yeah, and thank you for taking the time. So this has been Michael Risse, former Chief Strategy Officer at Seek, and soon will to appear in uh, probably a very interesting role, I have to imagine. So we'll stay tuned there. So thank you for listening, and please join us for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.